This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org. University lecturer in migration studies at UH. Heinz, best known perhaps for his work on migration and development, an area to which he's added a lot of critical and conceptual and empirical scholarship to become probably one of the foremost well known experts working on migration and development. Um, through his work on North Africa, the Middle East, and Morocco, he's pushed the boundaries of how we conceptualize migration theory and is currently working on an extremely exciting book to be published with Palgrave Macmillan, I believe, on migration theory, situating it in the context of migration and development. And we're very glad to have been able to um, persuade Hein to lend that expertise to thinking about a topic that he has thought about in other aspects of his work, conceptualizing structure and agency in environmental migration, and thinking about it in relation to the case of desertification and migration in Moroccan oases. Thank you very much for coming in to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alex. Um, so a long time ago, you, you asked me and that I provided you a title, which I slightly regretted later on, uh, because while thinking about the topic, I thought, and I was convinced by some of my colleagues, that I should actually talk about my first love in social science research, which was Oasis research. And I once uh, left Holland to Morocco to do an MA field work when I was just 23 years old in southern Morocco, about the links between desertification and, let's say, socio-economic political change in Moroccan oases. While living there and doing research, I discovered how important migration was in almost any part of Morocco, particularly in the south of Morocco, to explain any type of change, including environmental change, and here's the hint already, uh, that the more I thought about the topic, the more I thought the case of Moroccan oases, which I know better than any other case, could be a nice lens of thinking uh, about this whole issue. So I'll provide you with a lot of pictures later on. I will begin with, but with some more conceptual issues. And I do think that the case of the Oasis fits into a broader uh, critique, particularly by the so-called uh, political ecology school, on the sort of conventional ways in which the link between environment and migration is conceptualized. Um, and what I will particularly stress is the enormous role of agency, which I think uh, needs to be emphasized even more. And that also inevitably leads us to the conclusion that we just shouldn't just only conceptualize migration as a diverse consequence of environmental stress or climate change, but also as an independent cause of environmental change, environmental degradation. And I think that sort of dimension, apart from the literature on how migrants affect cities where they arrive, particularly with relation to origin areas, hasn't been much emphasized in literature at all. So for me, this presentation is a way coming full circle with my initial type of research I've been doing. And I think um, 
in that respect, I hope this has this presentation will add something to that debate. I think as a geographer, I've always been amazed in a way by the deterministic overtones of much of the sort of of debate, and I know that scholarship has gone much further these days, has really overcome this uh, determinist uh, overtones, but I think we should push it actually much further. Now this is of course where we come from, I think you're all familiar with that, the sort of, I would say, not really scientific kind of inputs into debate, which however have been incredibly influential, so these ideas about sea level rise, climate change, uh, extreme climate uh, events, uh, causing huge displacement in the future. And I think Norman Myers just talked about 200 million people, but Christian Aid even speculated about 1 billion people that might be displaced in the future. Now, a lot of attention has been drawn uh, to the issue of sea level rise. Here we all know the cases about Tuvalu and other islands, uh, which are presumably under the threat of disappearing and therefore are often linked uh, to particularly future displacement. The other issue that has uh, attracted a lot of attention is the increase in extreme weather events as a cause of uh, climate change. Now, I will concentrate on the third sort of major issue that is often mentioned as a big driver behind environmental the, the migration, which we could summarize as desertification. And this is the assumption that climate-induced reductions in rainfall, for instance, in and the Sahel zone in Northern Africa, will lead to increasing land degradation and depletion of water resources and will reinforce this process of desertification is somehow plays into the widespread notion of advancing deserts, the expanding Sahara. And then combined, so the environmental stress, the increase in environmental stress, and combined with population increase, is often presumed to increase the pressure on resources, to lead to increasing, for instance, overgrazing, increasing depletion of groundwater resources, salt accumulation, and so on and so forth, which will then negatively affect the so-called carrying capacity of such environments will lead to a decline in food production and eventually this will stimulate our migration. That is very broadly the narrative. And it's been often said that we can expect many more people coming, particularly from the Sahel zone in northern Africa, to also come to Europe as a kind of desperate migrants who flee those circumstances of deprivation of their natural environments, their agricultural environments, and this all feeds into this sort of apocalyptic representation of African hordes consisting of the hungry and the desperate, which are perhaps already on the way. And of course, media images have much contributed to that whole idea. And people like Myers and others have much contributed to this idea. So the idea that climate change and so concomitant desertification will force millions of people to move remains popular. And just think about recent not only media, but also scientific accounts about what's happening in Darfur, Somalia, and Ethiopia, the link is often made between drought, climate change, in often quite diffuse and vague ways, and population movement. It generally plays into more, 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 more general stereotypes about African migrants being uprooted and displaced, more in general. We won't hear the same discourse about desertification in other areas of the world. We mainly hear it when people refer to Africa. And it seems that the consequences, we're already witnessing it. It's also often been reported 
that one of the major causes of recent increases in boat migration from Africa to Europe are the depletion of local livelihoods in rural areas where those migrants come from. This is a map I think the UN, UNEP has now withdrawn, but it was an original map that showed the yellow shows areas in, at risk of desertification, and the link was also made that these are also high-risk areas in terms of proneness to international outmigration. This is another map quite similar from the German Advisory Council on Global Change, which even shows quite directly we have certain zones in the world where climate-induced degradation of freshwater resources, climate-induced decline in food production will lead to environmentally-induced migration. Now, of course, and I think the past lectures have all shown this, I don't need to repeat the critique that has come from social scientists working on environment migration. And there's a whole range of authors now, Black, Castles, Gamain, Hugo, Piguet, Zetter, the Foresight Report, which have all stressed that the whole concept of environmental migrant is hugely problematic, particularly because it's so difficult to distinguish the environmental factors from other migration drivers. And it, in most cases, it's very difficult to distill this as the sole driver behind migration. And also, these studies have very much emphasized that people are as likely to migrate to places of environmental vulnerability as from those places. And that environmental change might make, in some cases, migration more likely, but in other cases it might actually make migration less likely if people get deprived to an extent that they cannot move anymore. And perhaps there is a research consensus arising, just reviewing all these studies, that critique the sort of monocausal assumptions and deterministic assumptions of much prior work, which basically rules out agency, it very much plays into obsolete push-pull models of migration, where people are basically expected to be pushed around, pushed out of areas when environmental stress increases. And they also seem to conclude that environmental factors are just one of the many other migration drivers, so migration is not necessarily a response to increased environmental stress. They all seem to, uh, seem to agree that the whole notion of if people would start migrating in relation to environmental change, it is very unlikely that it is going to be about massive international, let alone transcontinental migration. Because most of the evidence, not so much on climate change, but more on responses to disasters and climate variability, for instance in rainfall, tend to show that most movement is short-term, short-distance, and that many migrants actually return. Another issue is that the insight that the poorest and deprived are actually least likely to move, and they are under the highest risk of being trapped into, to borrow a term from Jürgen Carling, involuntary immobility. Another point where they seem to agree is that migration can be an effective strategy uh, to cope with environmental stress. It can actually increase people's resilience to cope with it. So it's not necessarily something negative. It can actually be a positive mechanism. I think it's time to move beyond the state of the art. And I'm a newcomer in, in this debate, but just reviewing the debate, I think there is too much a tendency to say, yes, yeah, all dependent, and the country is dependent, we cannot, uh, it's very difficult. And I think we, we need to think about how can we move further. 
Yes, more empirical evidence that said a lot, and I, I, agree, I would agree with that, but I think that's not the whole story. I, I think there's a real need to also further reconceptualize. I think the authors I've just mentioned have done great effort at reconceptualizing the nexus, but I think we're not there yet. Because despite all the recent nuances that have been put in the debate, I think still, by and large, we can say that environmental change is perceived as a sort of exogenous factor descending upon rural communities and having some sort of an effect on the behavior of people. And we know that, for instance, climate change is eventually man-made, but it's a very indirect link that goes almost global. So there's no real connection between the communities that affect it. So basically they are confronted with an exogenous source of change. And the debate is very much, so far the debate has been on, but how do people respond? And I think effectively scholars have counted the sort of assumption that stress will automatically lead to more migration. But still migration agency is reduced to stimulus response. It's still not really going beyond the push-pull sort of framework. I think there are several lessons to be drawn reviewing the debate. First of all, I think there's a real need to connect basically theories on migration and theories on population and environment. And both bodies of theories have evolved largely separately. So if we think about how to conceptualize migration, let's shift away from just these push-pull models, which are still very prevalent, whereas we have a whole body of new theories, I don't have time to review it here, that very much stress how migration is an intrinsic part of development processes, that very much stress the role of migrant agency in migration processes. But learning from the whole other debate on population and environment, which is decades old, I think we also need to take more seriously the idea that the environment is actively constructed, both in people's minds and perceptions and in the physical reality. And this will be my main conclusion after showing the sort of my case studies. It also means that the causality can run the other way around. It's not just environmental change affecting migration, but also migration affecting environmental change. And as I will show, degradation can also result from decreased population pressure due to migration. And I think here we particularly need to learn from the existing, like I said, literature, particularly the political ecology literature. Now, to just very briefly review that huge debate, we can distinguish three main schools. That's, of course, neo-Malthusians. Dismissed by many people, but there are many neo-neo-neo-Malthusianisms, I think, uh, that, that, that pop up everywhere all the time. And this is basically the idea of we have a fi finite set of resources. Population growth or environmental degradation will negatively affect the carrying capacity and will somehow lead, inevitably, to more conflict and, in our case, more migration. Clearly, this totally denies agencies. agency. It's also based on a very simplistic push-pull model. People are passive victims of those outside forces, and they will move away. 
This is obviously Meyer's view, but also a very Homer Dixon, for instance, very, very famous author writing about population issues and conflict, takes this also as his starting point. All the ideas about water wars and future water wars are also based on this very assumption. I will leave this map. Then there is another set of theories which were somehow triggered by Esther Boserup, who wrote a book in 1965 called the conditions of agricultural growth, the economics of agrarian change, and the population pressure. Now, she was a Danish, I think, <coughs> agronomist, or the agronomist, doing a lot of work in Africa. And what she saw kind of seemed to challenge and to reverse many of the neo-Malthusian assumptions. And she basically hypothesized that the growth of population has been a major determinant of technological change and that population pressure often stimulates agricultural innovation, thereby increasing carrying capacity. So technology, we cannot assume technology constant, which the Malthusian models uh, seem to do all the time. Uh, no, people respond to pressure. So resource scarcity doesn't necessarily have to result in the conflict and migration. There is an increasing body of literature um, which seems to corroborate this literature. I think also the work by Amartya Sen, for instance, on poverty of famine also dismantles another tenet of Malthusian theory that, for instance, famines were always caused by an absolute deficiency of food, whereas food, whereas in most cases, the real causes were political and distributional. There's other, other theories, for instance, by, developed by Weber and Wittfogel, who hypothesized that it's not a coincidence that the sort of big civilization, centralized authorities, emerged in areas which were relatively dry and where the maintenance and distribution of irrigation systems required the emergence of early states. So in Egypt, Mesopotamia, parts of India, China and pre-Columbian societies, the need to organize water control and distribution explains, in a way, the emergence of early states. Oasis, as we'll show, is another example. I'm from Holland, What's not an environmental stress, the threat of the sea also compelled the Dutch to collaborate in water councils and contributed to the formation of early state, states in the Netherlands. The political ecology takes on board this view, but is actually critical about both Neo-Malthusian and Bosrapian views. The main critique is that by attempting to isolate population as a single causal variable, it actually Bozerup comes quite close to Neo-Malthusian views. Because population pressure or population generally is no independent variable, but is partly determined by the nature of resource use. So the role of technology again. So we can have very divergent responses. In the political ecology school pioneered by Blake and Brackfield, Blackfield, uh, Blake and Brookfield and others, very much emphasizes that the environment and nature are a social and political construction. It questions the whole sort of separation that's usually been made be, uh, between society and environment, and emphasizes how both are reciprocally um, interrelated. So the point I also want to stress, actually, that 
it's not just about the environment affecting society, but societies are in constant interaction with their environment, and their environment are often highly man-made, artificial, agroecological environments. This school also questions a sort of normative, conservationist nature of many population pressure debates, in which any form of change seems to be bad. And it very much emphasizes the political dimension, that sort of the guiding objective of the political ecology school is to understand the complex relations between environment and society through analyzing forms of access and control over resources. And this comes very close to Amartya Sen's views as well. So, I will try to, in the remainder of my presentation, to illustrate uh, why I think we need to take on board this much more interactive view about environment and society, and also understanding the whole debate about migration and environmental change. And I will basically draw on three years of fieldwork I've conducted over the last 19 years approximately in two main um, oasis areas in the south uh, of Morocco. Now, as a first-time visitor to southern Morocco, you will easily make two observations. You see sand encroachment, it kind of plays into the popular notion of an advancing desert. You see dying oasis. You see decaying adobe villages, these beautiful castle-like constructions. You often get a general feeling of abandonment. People have left this place. It's crumbling. There's still people living. But and at the same time, high art migration, the absence of young men and women, foreign license plates during summer holiday, an obsession with migration more generally, and the connection is easily made. People massively leave southern Moroccan oasis because of population pressure, because of the lack of natural resources. People have little choice but to move away. The Tafilat area, for instance, in Morocco, you can find many places like this, which really give this impression of the death of the oasis. You see the traditional water sources and irrigation systems have run dry. People will tell you about increasing drought and how much rain there was in the past. Population growth, the sedentarization of nomadic groups have increased pressure on natural resources and have actually depleted them and have less, left, led to desperate departures of uh, oasis dwellers. And hence, often the discourse also in Moroccan government circles that we need to restore agriculture in order to fix those people back on the farm, to prevent the rural exodus, either to cities in Morocco or abroad, uh, to happen and to continue. But does environmental degradation really explain migration from Moroccan oasis? I left to Morocco with that idea. But the more I stayed, and the more I talked, and the more I looked around, and try to do research, the more I realize that this is a very deceiving image. The roots of migration from southern Morocco, but anywhere in Morocco, are profoundly political economic. And if there's any causality between migration and environment in this region, it exactly runs the other way around. And this is my main conclusion, is that environmental degradation in southern Moroccan oasis is largely a result of political economic changes and migration rather than the other way around. 
And that migration and other changes have increased conflicts over control of water resources, which are at the root of the decay of traditional oasis systems. But that in other cases, migration has actually empowered migrants and their families to invest in agriculture. And I will show you two contrasting examples. Now let me first give me some sort of give you some general characteristics of oasis. Now an oasis is basically an area of vegetation in a desert, a man-made area of vegetation in a desert. They're highly artificial environments, 100% man-made agroecological system. They are based on collective land and water resource management by local water councils or water control boards. If you look at the ways of societies, it looks very nice, it's highly unequal. It's incredibly complex, varies from oasis to oasis, region to region, but roughly speaking, we see a caste-like system in which a relatively limited number of landowners have monopolized land access. And the actual agriculture traditionally was done by groups of landless sharecroppers, often black, so-called haratin populations, but also slaves. And slavery was an essential part of Oasis society. And the control, the control on their labor was essential in the maintenance uh, and the success of these agroecological systems. They were very dependent on this caste type of social hierarchies. Oasis also played a crucial role in trans-Saharan trade. I mean, there was another size, uh, another source of life, so they're not exclusively based on agriculture. Now, if we look at the agricultural system, you can already see we talk about very small plots. Extremely intensive forms of agriculture, where you see basically three layers of vegetation. I mean, the kind of prime crop is dates. Then we have lots of other fruit trees on the sort of second layer, and then the annual crop on the lowest layer. Incredibly intensive agricultural system, maximizing the output which was possible in the traditional circumstances on the limited land, and particularly, of course, water available. And irrigation was the foundation of the system. Water was, and is so scarce that water is subject to private ownership but needs to be collectively managed because often drawing on one source you need a collective management of the system and to distribute the water. And these systems were highly labor intensive. Now I will compare two oases. The first one is the Tolera Valley. This is where I spent most of my doctoral fieldwork, about two years area of high migration to Europe, relatively well enclosed, relatively developed, compared to the second area where I spent my MA field work, a bit shorter, which is one of the most marginal places you could find in Morocco, where most migration has been internal, and where the dynamics between migration and uh, uh, environmental change have been completely different. So let me start with the first one. The Todra Valley is a so-called river oasis, so it depends on a perennial source of, of river water, where the origins of migration have little to do with the environment, but are profoundly political economy, economic. But they have in turn impacted on the environment. It's got about 70,000 inhabitants living in 64 villages all along the valley. 
like most ways, is characterized by strong ethnic divisions between different Berber groups, particularly the division between black and white groups, has been the foundation of the organization of the system. And until colonization in the early 20s and 30s, most oasis dwellers dependent on subsistence agriculture. Two forms of irrigation predominated. Surface water irrigation, this is the Totobana River basically, and at several points in the valley you can find these dams, and water is led into these irrigation ditches which irrigate the field. There's a second system. Because river water is only available in the upstream parts of the valley, in more downstream parts, much more water scarce uh, parts of the valley, and in much of rural North Africa anyhow, you find the Khattara system. And this is actually an old Persian technique that has spread via the Middle East over the entire North Africa, which is a technique that allows, through digging these shafts and an underground tunnel, to tap into groundwater resources. And this is, I think, a prime example of how population pressure has led to the adoption of these techniques. It's a pre-modern agriculture, pre-modern agricultural technique that has allowed people to extend their irrigated surface to increase agrarian production. So I think it's already an example of how pressure sometimes, because Bozerup's point, um, encourages people to innovate. Now these Khatara systems are incredibly labor-intensive. You can imagine you have to descend into those wells from time to time to keep them clear because otherwise they get filled with sand and other debris and uh, the whole system will collapse. And most villages have their own Khatara systems, so there are dozens of these systems uh, in the valley, particularly in the more water-scarce parts, the downstream parts. And this is how fields are irrigated, it's just flood irrigation, whether they're irrigated by this river water or this Khatara water system. I promised lots of pictures, so here they come. This is another view of the Tot Highway, so you can see the, the, the valley is really hand in between. This escarpments and all agriculture takes place here. And actually in the upstream part, water is more abundant than land. Downstream, the relationship reverses. Now this map symbolizes, or depicts the sort of main migration flows, and from this valley, since basically colonial times, people have started to move internally, and particularly since the 1960s, increasingly to Europe, and predominantly to France, and more recently, Spain and also Italy have come up as important destinations. This is the only graph I'm showing you. What it shows is the estimated income in dirham per month between different types of families. And these are the non-migrant families, 2,000 dirham per month. Internal migration families, still about the same level. And these are the different types of international migrant households. And this share represents remittances. What it basically comes down to is that households that have participated in international migration have about double the income of other households. And that makes a major difference. And what we have seen as a consequence is that 40 years of a high international outmigration to Europe have completely transformed Oasis society, including agriculture and the environment. First of all, people have started to construct houses, so they moved out of the traditional adobe buildings 
other sides of the valley to build concrete houses, for instance. This is a typical example of a migrant house, but I think it's the most typical example of what migrants do. There's a first activity all around the world is to construct a house and have abandoned those beautiful old mud brick fortified villages increasingly. But what has also happened is the development of an urban, non-agrarian economy in this valley, particularly in the few towns in this, in this valley, have grown very rapidly and have attracted more and more investment by migrants who also, when they return, often decide to settle in those places. And we see an incredibly fast urban sprawl in these oases, where the economy is becoming more and more non-agrarian, and actually only 4% of all households in the entire valley still only uniquely depend on agriculture, and the majority of income and activities are non-agricultural in this valley. And migration has been a big trigger, both in terms of direct remittance income, but also of investments of remittances. For instance, in housing, which generates a lot of uh, employment for non-migrants and also people coming to the valley. So, urban development has been a major consequence a sort of second priority of many migrants invest in the education of the children, and also the research has shown that. Not agriculture. It's been housing, it's been education. Agriculture, if you go to the sort of traditional oasis, the traditionally irrigated space, we see where river water is abundant, like in this part, that basically agriculture is continued. There's a sort of free source of water available, perennial water sources. It's basically continued. What we do see is often less intensive forms of agriculture. So more land is like fallow, for instance, uh, increasing focus on livestock. We also see a feminization of the agricultural labor force, which has changed cropping patterns. But by and large, agriculture has continued. Although what we see in some cases is that the housing is kind of extending into the traditional oasis. So some of the agricultural space is being taken up uh, increasingly by houses. But what has been the most spectacular development is that many people who wanted to invest in agriculture haven't done so in a traditional system for two basic reasons. The small scale and the collective dimension of the traditional system sort of precluded them from becoming individual entrepreneurs but particularly also for those groups like the Haratin, who used to be the landless sharecroppers. Um, they wanted to escape the traditional system and preferred to invest in desert spaces outside of the traditional oasis, and often remittances of migrants have played a big role in these investments. And of course this was only possible through the advent of a third technique, which is motorized pumping. So historically we see river water, Getaras and in this last century, motorized pumping. It's caused a huge extension of the irrigated surface, in actually outside the traditional basis, and a limited form of mechanization, which is now also possible because the plot sizes are big enough, for instance, to operate tractors. And this is a map of the entire valley, and this is the only part of the valley which is uniquely irrigated. This is the upstream part by river water, and this entire part of the valley has a sort of mixed irrigation system, and downstream it's uniquely dependent on pumping. So new extensions basically of the oasis can be found here. But 
I estimated that about 1,200 pumps have been <coughs> operating in this valley for a very long time now. What has happened is that all the individual efforts by peasants and farmers to invest in pumping have caused a gradual lowering of underground water tables, which particularly in the lower parts of the valley, so the more downstream parts of the valley, have led to the abandonment increasingly of some of the wells, and particularly we could say that it has led to an increasing uh, concentration of water power in the hands of those who are able to dig deeper, basically. And the smaller farmers who try to, to, to develop these new farms have often abandoned these farms. So there's an increasing agricultural inequality, an increasing competition for water in a sort of laissez-faire model now. Everybody can pump. And it's not migration, but poverty that now forces people to retreat out of agriculture because they cannot access water anymore. And hence, if we go even more downstream, also the traditional systems suffer heavily under this upstream pumping because traditional Katara systems, which dependent on the groundwater, have now been increasingly depleted. So, it is a very mixed story. On the one hand, we see extension, increasing productivity. On the other hand, depending on to which social groups you look and which part of the oasis, we see degradation. But I think this degradation, I mean, there's other causes of it, like pumping of water for urban uses, but certainly the remittance-fueled investments into pumping have certainly contributed to this problem. Now let me move to the second oasis, Agadirtisim. And I think in many ways it's perhaps even a more interesting example. This is an aerial photograph, it shows a sort of mountain range, and only the only passage is here, and here is a sort of spring, and here you see irrigation, ditches, and this is the actual oasis on the two banks of this small river. And this is a sort of photograph from this mountain, actually, of this oasis. Now, like I said, it's a very different case in many ways. It's much poorer to start with. It's much more marginal. It has been much less well connected with international migration circuits. Large-scale migration has happened. You won't find many young men there, but most have left for cities or work in the army. And many people actually migrate for education, because there's no secondary school. Uh, so just to have secondary education, people already migrate away, mostly men in this context. The only striking feature of this oasis is the abundance of water. Really abundant. Just imagine this in the middle of the desert. This spring is incredible. It's perennial, all year round, supply of irrigation water. But migrants have sent, internal migrants have sent money back, but not in huge amounts. It's been a much more meager form of resources. And many people haven't left these old um, um, adobe uh, fortified villages. And some people haven't left in houses, but you can already see the poverty here. It's a very different picture than the sort of fancy houses that the international migrants have been uh, constructing. much poorer conditions. But at the same time we see abandoned water resources. 
But at the same time, walking in the oasis, we often see that farmers complain that they can't irrigate their fields anymore. Which surprised me, because you think there's so much water upstream. And it took me a long time to understand that the basic issue was that because of conflicts within the traditional water council, particularly between those who used to be the elite in the oasis, the land-owning elite, and those who now reclaim equal rights, for instance, to water, who, and these are often the people who, who migrated internally, have alternative sources of income, are not uniquely dependent on agriculture anymore, cause so many conflicts in the, in the water boards on particularly the maintenance of the system, where the ancient elite refused to contribute to the maintenance of the system whereas they had very high shares still in the, in the water, that often maintenance didn't take place anymore. So what you basically see is sending growth in those irrigation ditches, which were clogged up at some point, and the water didn't even stream uh, anymore, and have caused a lot of peasants to, to abandon their fields, basically. Hence the picture of sand encroachment. In this oasis, there's a lot of local... Uh, Sandunes walking around this oasis, actually walking into the oasis. Now, historical sources, but also if you talk to people, this has always been the case. This is not a new phenomenon. But people are not trying to prevent it from happening anymore. In the past, you had walls surrounding the oasis. They often don't exist anymore. And as a consequence of the difficulties to irrigate because of the maintenance problems, which are ultimately rooted into conflicts within the community, which in their turn are rooted into socio-economic change, which have upset the traditional hierarchies, means that lots of fields don't get irrigated anymore. You typically see in dry land environments a salt accumulation, which makes the fields almost sterile and totally unsuitable for agricultural production. What we don't see in this oasis is investments in new agriculture, like in the Oda Valley. Why? Mainly because people lack resources. So people who are totally dependent on agriculture in this oasis, who haven't had the resources and the networks to migrate, they're the real victims of this development. Because they're often forced, also deprived of their livelihoods. If you want to know how it is to do field work in southern Morocco, it's a lot of meals and 18 years earlier a lot of tea. <laughs> um, but that's the fun part. Um, what did I try to say? Okay, you see this image, another sand dune in Agaditisi, same oasis. Conventional wisdom, growing population, sedentarization of nomads adding to the population pressure, declining rainfall, encroachment of the desert, growing population pressure on resources, so we see desertification, increased outmigration. Basically, the image of an oasis swallowed by dunes, forced, forcing people to migrate away. The real story is different. I think, ultimately, the degradation of traditional oasis systems is the result of declined population pressure. People aren't dependent anymore uniquely on agriculture. Even further than that, it's become a relatively minor livelihood source. They can afford, in a way, the luxury. 
to create conflicts about land and water use. People aren't dependent anymore, at least the majority enough, for the survival on these systems. And it's been mainly socio-economic and political change in which migration played a major role that can explain the problems those traditional agroecological environments are experiencing. It's been an opening of markets, which has also played a big role in terms of the import of cheap wheat, for instance, has of course also played a big role here, but also the emancipation of traditionally subordinate ethnic groups, particularly the Harati, so the, 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 the traditional group of um, 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 sharecroppers in those societies and ex-slaves, which have triggered a process of individualization, has triggered own investments in pumps, and have declined the whole dependency on subsistence agriculture. But what you see is very different responses in the two oasis areas. In the Todra Valley, the first example, we, the overall story has been that migration has empowered migrants to increase productivity through investments, although we see knock-on negative effects on the longer term, particularly on downstream paths in the valley in terms of the accelerated breakdown of traditional oasis systems. In Agadir-Tissim, the second example, it is not a desert that is advancing, it's man that's withdrawing, basically. It's ex it, the causality, I think, is exactly the other way around. Now, it kind of reiterates the point, I think, from the political ecology school that depending on the political economic context, environmental stress can coincide with innovation and livelihood improvement, but also the other way around. And this also illustrates the more sort of ambiguous role of migration. And in this case, rather than a cause, it's rather a cause and a consequence of environmental change in very artificial agroecological systems like oases. And in some cases, migration has enabled the abandonment of the systems. We have seen the withdrawal of people from those systems. And in a way, if there is such a thing as nature, which is, by the way, in Morocco, not mainly sand dunes, but it's in southern Morocco, stone or sand deserts, you can say that if the oasis disappears, it's become more natural in a way. This is a problem. I think there's no objective answer to this question. It's sad to see oasis decaying. It's sad to see those fortified villages crumbling down. It's sad to see a whole mode of life disappearing. But I would dare to argue that for most people involved, they're much better off. Just two or three generations of them, most lived either in slavery or abject poverty. Famines were quite common. There was no resilience to environmental stress. There was no escape, which is now often migration. Not just an escape, but also a way, certainly when people migrate internationally, to improve your livelihoods. And I think there are many historical examples here. If you look at older studies in, in geography and history about how rural spaces in France and Germany were emptied and given up and now are now seen as natural again, marginal agricultural spaces, which were not viable anymore, uh, have often been abandoned by populations. And that, that, again, is not a new phenomenon. I'm not saying this is not a problem what's happening in southern Morocco, but I think there's a big risk of seeing anything that has to do with change as bad, and this is the kind of conservative 
um, kind of assumptions in much of this debate. I do think if you look at, for instance, these Khatara techniques, these traditional ways of tapping into underground water resources, an incredible example of highly sustainable, very innovative systems, which deserve to be revitalized in many ways. <clears throat> so I think it's a big loss if those systems would get totally lost. Um, but to think this would solve something in the terms of lead to less migration, I think it's, it's a, the wrong sort of uh, reasoning. And also I hope this presentation illustrated a little bit more my main point, is that we need not just to look at migration as a possible response, to environmental stress, but also that migration, particularly when we look more at the micro and meso level, is a constant interaction with the environment, and that the phenomenon like migration is not just a coping strategy, it's also a direct factor uh, also affecting those very environmental changes. Okay, thank you. If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Forced Migration online. www.forcemigration.org slash podcasts.